And I have shared what I'm about to share with you before this opening story, but um, I want to share it again because it has ingrained itself into my memory. It's a part of my Christmas memories. And it's my grandmother on my mother's side, my mother's mother. She lived in Rochester, Grandma Staley, lived in Rochester in a, a retirement skyrise condominium. And every Christmas, we would go out there to see her, and every Christmas, without fail, she would get all, give all of us Ackley kids, there were six of us kids, I'm the youngest of six in our family, she would give all of us the same two gifts every year. We got soap on a rope, and we got the carton, the box of Lifesavers. Now, how many of you have ever received soap on a rope for Christmas? I mean, it's a memorable gift. How many of you have, have received that year after year, your entire growing up life? I'm the only one scarred this deeply. That's it. How about lifesavers? Who, who has gotten the box of lifesavers? Listen, that's the gift you give people whom you don't, do not love. Okay? If you have given that to somebody, you don't love them. And now you understand if you've been given that, they didn't love you. All right? Just a little Christmas cheer to give along the way. But teachers, now listen, teachers receive even stranger gifts. One fourth grade teacher received from her student a large statue of a naked fertility goddess. How would you like to have that one? Another teacher received a box of chocolates from her fourth grader, but when she opened it, half were missing and one had a bite taken out of it. These are true stories. One teacher received one earring from a student, and when she asked about the other one, he said he gave it to the librarian. Another received a used roll of duct tape, and another an avocado wrapped in aluminum foil. Listen, finding the right gifts to give other people around Christmas time can be difficult. It's complicated. So I thought what we would do is we would begin today with some gift ideas for the people that you love. And I think they're really pretty good ideas. And you may want to write down one or two of them. You ready? Here we go. Here's some gift ideas that you can give the people that you love or the people that are in your lives. Mend a quarrel. You ever thought of that? Dismiss a suspicion. Tell someone I love you whom you haven't said, haven't said that to for a while. Turn away wrath with a soft answer. Visit someone who is suffering. Say sorry for a wrong that you committed. Be especially kind to someone with whom you work, even if they do not deserve it. And none of those gift ideas require money. All of them have eternal idea or value. And there's one more, though, one more gift that is greater than all of those that I just mentioned. One that every Christian here today can give for Christmas. Go to a person you know who needs Jesus Christ. And tell that person what Jesus has done for you. You ever thought of that for a Christmas gift? You cannot possibly give a better gift than that. 
Today ends the sermon series that we've called The Greatest Job on Earth. And ironically, we're going to find ourselves right back to the way we began the series. If you remember a long time ago, several weeks ago, we began by looking at what is popularly called the Great Commission. That's sort of a modern title. That's not what the early church called this, but it's what we call it today. Matthew 28, here it is. You can see it on the screens. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the greatest job on earth. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We end the series back where we began. But this time, now listen, it's going to be a little different. This time we're going to see it in action through a group of men who occupied the very bottom rung of Jewish, Jewish society. Their names were the shepherds. So we're actually going to kick off Christmas Advent season with a story that's going to help end the Greatest Job on Earth series. And we go to Luke chapter 2, and I hope you're there. Let's all get there. Let's all look at this together. Luke chapter 2, and let's start at verse 8. And here's what God's word says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. You know, in the 4th century, so you're looking at the end of it, so 360, 370 A.D., maybe it might have been 380 A.D., the bishop of Jerusalem, he sent a letter to Rome. This is true. And he asked, he asked the head bishop, the archbishop of Rome, to determine the date of Christ's birth so that they can annually celebrate it. Now, the bishop of Rome's answer was December 25th. And so by the end of the 4th century, it was fixed. Christmas was December 25th. It was celebrated that December 25th was the day that Jesus Christ was born. But that really wasn't the date. Or at least most don't believe it is. There's no evidence that Jesus Christ was born December 25th. But there's a lot of evidence that he wasn't. But the Bishop of Rome, well, he had reasons for choosing the date that he did. December in Rome was the major month of pagan celebrations. They had festivals and feasts and all kinds of immoral activities culminating in the festival of Saturnalia. They would even, masters would take the place of slaves and slaves would take the place of masters and they would have trees and they would, they would give gifts to one another. This is all about Saturnalia. And what is Saturnalia? Well, Saturn was the Roman god of agriculture and the Romans believed that if you worshipped Saturn during the death cycle, that's what we call winter, when your fields are dormant, if you worship this god Saturn when the fields are dormant in the winter, he's going to bring them back alive when the spring comes. That's what they believed. So they would gather in December, usually the last week of December, for feasting, they would adorn their homes with evergreens. They would hang trinkets on trees. They would light candles. Listen, is this sounding familiar? You want to know where we get our Christmas roots? It's really the church trying to 
take a pagan festival and redeem it, bring it into Christianity. They would hang mistletoe. They would exchange gifts with one another. The most common gifts were little idols in the image of the variety of Roman deities made out of clay, marble, and silver. And the bishop of Rome, and he wanted to convert this heathen celebration, and he spectacularly failed. See, the day of Christ's birth has never been proven, yet late December seems pretty difficult to imagine that that's when the Son of God was born. Well, we read about these shepherds, and they're out in this field, and it may probably not be December. In fact, it's likely more March, possibly April. But shepherding was the very first career. Did you know that? It was the very first career of the Bible. You ever thought through that? Began with Abel. And some very famous people were shepherds. Now think Moses, all right? Now think through your biblical knowledge. Who were shepherds? You got Moses. You got David. You've got Amos, among others. But throughout history, shepherds have been despised. You know what, you know what the view of shepherds were when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt? Listen to this from Genesis 46, verse 34. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So the, the view of the world towards shepherding has not always been very good. And the attitude really was not entirely unwarranted. In other words, they kind of deserved their reputation often because they were kind of an untrustworthy group. But at the time of Christ, they were so despised by the religious leaders that the only people considered socially lower than shepherds were lepers. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, nobody would touch a leper. Rabbis, spiritual leaders of Judaism, the Jewish religion, they would pick up rocks. One rabbi would brag that he would throw rocks at lepers to drive them away. The law, the Jewish law commanded that if the wind was blowing towards you, then a leper couldn't be closer than 150 feet. If the wind was blowing towards the leper, then they can't, they can't be closer than six feet. Leprosy was a death warrant. They were despised. Now, click one rung up on the ladder and you've got shepherds. You don't get lower than lepers, but you've only got one rung up to go before you hit the shepherds. They were so despised that they, they actually lived under what was called a rabbinical ban. In other words, the rabbis, the pastors of Judaism, they labeled them unclean because their work prevented them from ever coming to the temple to be cleaned ceremonially. So they were always considered as unclean people. They were outcasts. You know what? They weren't even allowed in a city if the city had walls. They were not trusted in a general public, by the general public. They were regarded as thieves. Listen to this. Shepherds never were allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court of law. That's how despised they were. Yet there were some who regarded them as a very meditative class of men, accustomed to silence and contemplation. Listen, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they be? They spent months outdoors under the open sky, doing nothing but watching over sheep. Oftentimes, shepherds were very, very contemplative men. 
both their rejection from others, their tendency toward quiet communion in their hearts. Listen, it makes, it makes their reception of the birth announcement that we're about to read that the Savior of the world is born, it makes it all the more spectacular. Why would God announce the birth of his son to shepherds? Well, I want you to imagine now, and you, you get to do this in Scripture, you get to have a holy imagination. What I mean by that is your imagination cannot exceed the word of God. It cannot go around the word of God, but the word of God can fill your imagination with holiness and extravagant creativity. Why would God make the birth announcement to shepherds? Well, I want you to imagine this group of socially isolated men. They're out in their field. They're guarding their sheep at night and a life-changing event occurs. Now listen, let your imagination go as far as the scriptures allows it. Verse, verse 9. Luke 2, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Can you imagine this? I don't know what you're thinking when you think of an angel of the Lord. But an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Well, Revelation says that one was flying over John's head. So somehow they fly, whether they are batting and beating their wings or if they have no wings. I don't know, Clarence. It's a wonderful life. I don't know. But listen, they can fly. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. They came out of nowhere. That's what that means. This angel did. And the glory of the Lord, Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. For 400 years, the world had no legitimate record of angelic visitors. Not for 400 years. It's been called 400 years of darkness. Because God had not made his word known through angels. Angels were messengers. And then all of a sudden, one appeared to Zechariah, a little earlier in Luke, and then to Mary, and now to these shepherds. And this one did not appear veiled in humanity. Listen, there are times when Jesus would appear in the Old Testament, and he looked like another man. That's what Gideon saw. He was in the form of a human being. But this angel is not garbed in just humanity. There is the glowing glory of God surrounding this angel. And the shepherds, look at their reaction. They're filled with excitement, filled with anticipation. Absolutely not. They're filled with fear. Great fear, the text says. You know what great fear is? If you take fear, now I want you to, right now, holy imagination. I want you to remember the last time that you were afraid now, some of you may never have had this moment, but can you imagine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase that. Can, has there ever been a time where you were terrified? Not just afraid, terrified. Well, if you can think of that event and your emotional response, listen, now you've got great fear. This is not just ordinary fear. This is fear on steroids. This is fear exponential. This is great fear. And they were so afraid that the angel immediately has to say to them, look at verse 10, fear not. Now listen, why would the angel say that if they're not in absolute terror? Well, they are in absolute terror. The angel knows it. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. He had to say that. Listen, oftentimes Jews would think when an angel is going to appear, you're about to die. It's the angel of death. 
Well, this was not the angel of death. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, you need to understand something, a little bit at least. In ancient days, royal birth announcements, you know, you know what we do? We send in the mail you know, an invitation to come to a birthday or a pronoun. We, we put pink balloons on our mailbox if you just had a girl or blue ones if you have a boy. Listen, when they made birth announcements in royalty, you usually made it to the elite first, the wealthy first, the powerful first, but not in God's economy. God makes his birth announcement all the way to the very bottom of the social ladder, one rung up, and he makes it to the shepherds. Now, I want you to imagine something again. I want you to think through this. Wouldn't you have thought that God would have made the announcement to the priests in Jerusalem or to the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Essenes or the scribes or the Sanhedrin, the ruling body made up of a lot of those different categories? Wouldn't God have made that announcement first to the, the people who are in spiritual Authority over, over the Jews, but he doesn't do that. The announcement of the birth of Christ the Lord came first to the bottom. Now listen, let me ask you to be honest for a second. And I can guarantee you this is not everybody in this room. And I don't even really want you to give an answer. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to raise your hand. It's a rhetorical question, meaning it's just something that you think through in your own heart and your own mind. How many of you, again, don't respond, how many of you feel like you're on that bottom rung of our society ladder? And all of a sudden you get to see a little bit of God's grace that always runs downhill. You ever thought through that before? God's grace always runs downhill. He always gives grace and chooses the weak in our world, the foolish in our, wor in our world, the despised in our world, not the ones way up here, not the ones that are successful, not the ones that are on platforms, the ones that are at the very, very bottom. God's always done that. You don't see a lot of biblical saints who were of the high and mighty ruling class. They're always at the bottom, David, at the very bottom of his siblings. Samuel, for all practical reasons, orphaned, given up to the care of Eli. I mean, over and over, Saul, who upon the day of where he was coronated king, he's hiding in fear in the baggage carts. I mean, God chooses the people that we wouldn't. Grace runs downhill. And so the announcement of, of Christ the Lord, which is a title, by the way, you, do you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's surprising how many people don't know that. They didn't go by last night names. They would have gone Jesus, son of Joseph. They didn't have last names. So Jesus Christ, it's a title, Jesus and Christ, both words. And when you combine them, 
mean the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who is ruler, Lord, ruler over all creation. And we've got these angels. They're giving this birth announcement to these shepherds and angels who are these messengers of God. They're, they're being sent from God to communicate to humanity. And they often communicated good news as well as sometimes news of judgment. Well, listen to this scene in Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. I would underline that if I were you. Because the gospel will never have an expiration date. The gospel is the good news that I'm going to explain in a minute. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And what we've learned in this discipleship series is that God wants to make disciples out of every people group. He wants every tribe, every tongue, every people group to be in heaven. And here we see that the gospel was successful. And suddenly we get propelled forward and we see again Matthew 28 verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, this is what the angels are doing. Starting with the bottom of Jewish society with the shepherds. Declaring to them the good news of Christ, the eternal gospel. How many of you, in this one you can respond. How many of you watch the evening news with some sort of regularity? Raise your hand if you do. I remember one critic said the evening news is where they begin with good evening and then tell you why it isn't. That seems to be pretty accurate, doesn't it? Well, the phrase good news, listen, it's one word. Now, you hearing me? In the Greek, it's one word, and it's the word that we translate gospel. The gospel is the good news, and it's this good news that the angel declared. The gospel is this. God saved us because we could not save ourselves. He saved us from eternal death and hell, and he saved us for a life of eternal service to him. And he did it one way through Jesus, his son, the death, burial, and resurrection. And he did it for the fame of his name, his great glory. That's the good news, that every single person that has ever lived on the face of this earth, even Adam and Eve in the beginning, fell into sin. We're born in sin. We're born separated from God. We're born under God's judgment. And God says there's nothing that you can do. You cannot earn your way into God's favor. You cannot do enough good things. You can't go to church enough and tick off your attendance report card to God. And he says, finally, you've earned your salvation. Literally, it is impossible. You cannot earn your salvation. God, therefore, had to do something on our behalf. He had to save us. This is what the Christmas message is all about. We were dead in our sins, helplessly under the condemnation of God. Therefore, God brought and sent his son Jesus to live inside humanity and to live obedient to the law, something that not you, not me, not one of us has ever been able to do, obedient to the law. And he was that spotless lamb who was nailed to that cross, killed on our behalf in the very moment that you put your faith in Jesus he gives you a new heart. He saves you. He declares you innocent before him. And he begins to teach you how to walk in grace. That's the good news. 
the gospel, that good news. Look at what Romans says or listen to it. It's the power of God for salvation. Listen, there is no other power of God for salvation other than the gospel. If you're, if you're believing, if you're believing that reading the religious pages of the Baha'i faith, and it's not faith, can save you, then you don't understand what Romans just said. There is no other gospel that could give you salvation. If you're thinking that you can read all about positive thinking, and if you think that you can do all of these kind gestures to those who are more needy than you, and God is going to barter with you and say, though you've earned it, here's what I could give you. Listen, that will not ever happen. He cannot do that or he's an unholy God. Jesus had to die. And I always put it this way. I have four children. And parents, I would, I would ask you to think like this. If there was any other way for people to be saved, would the father really ask his son to die? Would you do that for your children? If you could be saved in any other way, would really, would the father, the heavenly father, really send Jesus' his son to die on that cross, I could tell you what, I wouldn't. I'm pretty sure God wouldn't either. There was no other way. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the good news is God did shed his blood, his own blood. He died to the death so that we can live to the life. He could give us life when we come to him in faith. That's the gospel. And look at verse 12. It centers on a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And if the shepherds hadn't been yet excited or excited yet enough, suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the gospel. And there's a multitude of angels. You know what that word means? It really implies that every single angel in heaven emptied out of heaven and came down to earth for this birth announcement. Can you imagine the skies? Now listen, you're a shepherd. Can you imagine? You've never seen anything like this. You're out at nighttime. You've got your sheep in a pen. They make them by putting them in an enclosure and then laying logs across the entrance. Or they sleep across the entrance so you're at night you're watching over your sheep because that's nocturnal wild beast time they're going to try to get your sheep and all of a sudden you see this angel come you hear that angel speak gives you the good news and the sky begins to fill from horizon to horizon with gloriously glowing angels and they are declaring the gospel can you imagine being there saying words like peace among those with whom he is pleased. Nobody's ever pleased with the shepherd. That's a foreign concept to their thinking. Peace, well, listen, that's a farce. Peace was what the Romans were declaring, Pax Romana, Latin, Roman peace. Peace is Pax Romana, Roman. They declared all of their conquered territory to be existing in peace. The Romans did. It's because they, were, they put the fear of their military so deeply into their hearts that if you rise up, they would kill you. That's how they made peace. That's not true peace. 
So what are the shepherds to do with this experience? And it's actually where we're heading in this message. This message that they heard, that they witnessed, would they keep it secret? What would you do? If you're despised and you're on the bottom rung one click up and nobody likes you, nobody trusts you, and you just received this amazing vision, you just saw this amazing, amazing gospel declared to you, what would you do? Well, let me point out why, strangely enough as it sounds, why Luke wrote his gospel. He's writing to a non-Jewish friend. His name was Theophilus. He is a Gentile. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 1, if you want to flip back a page, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right now, and you may not know about this, or you might, but um, right now it's all the rage, emergent theology. And there's some good things happening in emerging theology. It goes by emergent or emerging, and there's some good things happening. It's getting us to really reach out into our communities and to really love social justice and, and bringing the, the, the justice of God and the peace of God, the gospel of God to those who are suffering it's fantastic, but let me tell you what's an undercurrent in emergent theology that you've got to be aware of. Their buzz phrase is this, you can't be certain of anything because your interpretation of the word of God might be wrong. So therefore, don't be dogmatic about anything. Don't declare truth without the willingness to reinterpret it. Well, why did Luke write this for Theophilus? This is the power of the word of God, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The word of God is to make us more certain, not more questioning. Questions are often the tactic of the enemy. So that Theophilus would know for sure the truths of the Christian faith. By the way, you know the first person, the first being to ever ask a question in human history? It wasn't God, he was the second, it was the devil. Did God really say? Sir, uncertainty is not the goal of the word of God. Humble confidence that what God says in his word is true and we can trust it. The angels had said to the shepherds that a sign was given for them to know for certain that the Savior of the world, Christ, the Lord, had been born that very did. So what did they do? Well, they did what any rational reasoning, reasoning person would do. They went and investigated. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Interesting that the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And I kind of want to pause for a minute and tell you about some really interesting birth customs around our world. Well, if you went to the Netherlands, ladies, if you have a baby in the, Nether in the Netherlands, the attending nurse that's taking care of you for the new mother makes biscuits with mice. That means biscuits topped with sprinkles, blue for a baby boy, and pink and white for baby girls. That's the Netherlands. Uh, well, if you have a baby in Japan, the new mother often stays at her mother's at her parents' home for a month or longer. She stays in bed with the baby for 21 days while friends visit and they celebrate eating red rice and beans. That's Japanese culture. How about Turkey? 
You go to the country of Turkey, mother and baby stay home for the first 20 days after the birth while friends visit to celebrate by drinking special beverages. And then afterwards, the mother with her child go and visit those friends who came and they often have a handkerchief filled with a single egg for a healthy baby and candy for a good-natured baby and they rub flour on the baby's hairline and eyebrows supposedly granting a very long life that's turkey how about indonesia well i think ladies you probably want to get to indonesia because mothers are given 90-minute massages every day for a month after giving birth That's not in America. In the, Vietnam, in the Vietnamese custom, the mother-in-law moves in for a month and helps out. How you like that, dads? Husbands? Get the mother-in-law to come in for a month. For many Hindu mothers, I'm going to kind of encourage you to steer clear of this one. They do not wash until the fifth day after birth when she is given a bath in sacred cow urine and milk and allowed to rest in a room prepared with fresh cow dung. And that's true. The reason they do that is because Hindu adherents believe 330 million gods and goddesses reside in each cow, and everything that comes out of the cow is sacred. Don't go to the uh, Hindu countries and have your babies. Well, the first century Jew, they had customs as well. Look what it says. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now Luke's not going to mention the customs, but here's what they would do. Now ladies, here's what would happen. You give birth in first century Judaism. And what's going to happen is they're going to take salt and they're going to rub it vigorously all over the body of that baby to clean all of the birthing fluids out of the creases of the baby believing that it, it strengthens the skin, hardening the skin. And then the baby is going to be swaddled in order to stay warm, to protect the internal organs, to keep the limbs straight for proper growth. And sometimes they're going to make swaddling cloths that are square, kind of like the ones that we use today. But more often than not, they take linen strips of cloth and they wrap each limb first tightly to the body and then they wrap the body And what a metaphor this is as the Son of God was wrapped in flesh and now this cloth by Mary. This is what Martin Luther once said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. And the text tells us he was laid in a, in a manger. I don't know if you're thinking in your mind a beautiful wood-carved bassinet, but a manger was a feeding trough for animals usually carved out of rock. This is the birth of God. Not in an inn because the inn was full. The article the inn means that there was a inn, an inn, a common place where travelers would stay. Not there, it was full, likely in one of the limestone caverns and caves surrounding Bethlehem and its hills. Now, the goal of this sermon is what we're about to see right now. But let me tell you about Christmas mornings in my own life first. I have so many wonderful memories of Christmas, and I'm very aware that not everybody has wonderful memories of Christmas while growing up, but I do. And a family of eight was always full of commotion. Six kids, my parents, 
holidays were exciting. And if there was snow on the ground in central New York, where I'm from, then it was doubly wonderful on Christmas. But on Christmas Eve, after my Aunt Winnie and Uncle Foster would leave, and we would just pray that they would hurry up and leave, and they always lingered. Because after they would leave, my mom would draft us into service. We would go back to one of the bedrooms where she had wrapped all of the presents. And it was our job as children to carry those presents out and put them under the tree. And we would always see which one was the heaviest and whose name was on it. And my mom, would, we would bring them out to the tree and my mom would so carefully, planningly, structurally pack them under the tree because she knew exactly how she wanted them to come out. But you know what? One of the gifts that was not in physical form that it was given to me was every once in a while, my mom on Christmas morning, when we would all gather around to receive our gifts, my mom would give me the privilege or one of the other children to hand the gifts to the person whose name was on them. Denise loves, that's my wife, she loves the joy of handing the gifts out. And we do it in our family now, we do it one at a time so we can all join in on the joy of gift opening. And Andy, that's my little nine-year-old, without fail, if you could be there, you would see it. He, I don't know if your kids do this, but he will open up a gift and we always tell him that this one's from Matthew, this is from mom and dad, this is from Carissa or Aaron. And he will immediately after he opens it, throw the gift down, run over to the person who gave it to him and grab them in a hug and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Every single gift, it is, it is priceless to watch. But what I've learned now as a parent is this, and parents, I know you're going to know this. There is more joy in giving than there is receiving. It's fun to receive a gift, but when you get older, the joy of giving gifts is so much greater. And friends, this is, to me, disciple-making. It's the sharing of the greatest gift imaginable. Is there a greater gift that you could ever give to someone than the good news of salvation? Well, look at verse 17. And when they saw it, the shepherds, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned. That means they went back to their careers, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Did you notice what it said? They made known the saying that had been told them concerning Christ. You remember Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's exactly what the shepherds start doing. And guess what? They didn't go to seminary. They didn't get a manual on how to do it. They didn't walk with Christ for three years to learn how to be a disciple maker. They didn't get online to Google and Google in how to make a disciple or how to get to Romans Road and present the gospel. Listen, all they did was everywhere they went, they shared what Christ had done for them. They shared about this baby, Jesus, that they had met. That's what it means to begin making disciples. And guess what? You're not trained more than them, and they weren't trained more than you. The gospel is a gift from God. It is never meant to stay private. 
or concealed. It's meant to be shared. And sometimes we share that in the form of witnessing to an unbeliever, but sometimes we share it by explaining to a Christian so that that person can grow in Christ. Listen, it's all part of making disciples. It's all part of the greatest gift on earth. Clifford Stewart, as I get ready to close, was a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. And he tells how years ago he bought his parents their first microwave. I remember, I remember, I'm 48. I remember when my mom and dad got their first microwave. We all stood back. They would turn it on and we would stand back because it was pretty quick after microwave. Some of you remember this, that all of a sudden the, the rumor went around that cancer is caused by microwaves. So you start the microwave, but you don't stand near it. I remember my mom telling me, don't stand in front of the microwave. You're going to get cancer. Well, microwaves were kind of scary. So Clifford bought his parents their first microwave. He had it shipped to them. And his father opens the box. He's excited. He heard how quickly you can heat food and water for tea in these things. They plugged it in, but they couldn't figure out how to make it work. Even after they read the directions. A couple days later, Clifford tells about his mom. She's playing bridge with a group of women. And she's sharing to those ladies her frustration with the microwave. And one of the ladies offered that the directions, maybe they should just be clear. Here's what Clifford's mom said, and I don't want you to forget this. He said, I don't need, she said, I don't need better directions. I need my son to come along with a gift. That's the gospel. And all of a sudden, we go back to Matthew 28, and we remember what Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, and he ends it. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Haven't you ever felt, I'm not equipped enough to make disciples. My life's not together enough to make disciples. I don't yet know how to do this. I don't know where to go to in the Bible. If they ask me, what's this mean? I don't know how to answer it. I'm not ready to make disciples. And the shepherds are going to stand in witness of you and say, neither were we. But we saw Jesus. We met him. And we had to tell everybody we saw about him. And they went back to their careers rejoicing that they had seen Jesus the Messiah. That's what it means to be disciple makers. You may not have a better time than right now to be a shepherd. Tell everybody how amazing your Jesus is. Can I encourage you? Maybe you need to go back to the manger. Maybe you need to go back to the cross. Maybe you need to go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need to tell people about you. I need to be one who makes disciples, who know how to make disciples. And I've got everything I need. I've got the son who came along with the gift, and he lives in my heart. And he will help me know what to say. Amen.